We're going to uh, be in uh, Psalm chapter 12 tonight, Psalm 12. And so if you want to open your Bibles, then Psalm uh, 12. Uh, as we get ready here, let me ask this question here to, uh, as we get started here, as you turn to Psalm 12, um, to the adults here, is there a favorite verse, one of your favorite verse that's been an encouragement to you? John? All right, good. Anybody else? An encouraging verse. Amen. Darcel? Amen. Anybody else? An encouraging verse from the Bible. Something that's encouraged you. Ruth? All right, good. Anybody else? Sophia? You know what it says? Amen. All right, yes? Amen. All right. Anybody else? An encouraging verse. Jenny? Amen. That's encouraging. Anybody else? Ray? Amen. Well, Adeline? He will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen. All right, notice with me Psalm uh, chapter 12. Before we begin reading here, uh, there's a reason why I just did this. There's a contrast in this psalm between the words of men and the words of God. And this is very important because today we all live individually and we have a lot of things that go through our minds, things that we meditate on. Uh, things that enter into our hearts, and um, typically they come from three places. First one is the words of men. Those who are out in the world, they say things. Uh, then we have our own, our own thoughts. Things that come and they go and we think and we dwell on things. Some, have you ever had a thought and you say, man, where did that thought come from? It just kind of popped in there, right? That, that does happen. And so, there's the words of men out in the world that we hear. There's, there's our own words, our, our own thoughts. But then, more importantly, there are the words of God. And I think we have to be aware that as we live this life, there is a constant struggle between all of those words. The words of men, the words that we formulate in our own hearts, and our own minds, and then the words of God. Here in this Psalm 12, we find that the psalmist is uh, dealing with some what seems to be some pretty severe trouble by the opening words, you find that this is a person who is in distress, and that person is in distress specifically for the words of the ungodly, the words of the wicked. But there's going to be a turning point, as there often are in the Psalms. 
where there is a focus on perhaps the difficulties of the circumstances or the words of the heathen, or maybe the psalmist is struggling with his own heart and his own mind. We see that in um, Psalm 42 when he says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? And so uh, there's a turning point here where he's going to contrast the words of men with the words of God. And so let me begin by asking you this question. What do you put more weight in? What do you and I, what do we put more weight in? The words of men or the words of God? And that's a question that's going to take some serious consideration because our life largely reflects the words we give weight to. And so I I hope that this psalm will be a help to us this evening. So let's stand together, Psalm 12. We're going to read all uh, the verses of this, uh, this psalm, eight verses. Psalm 12, and we stand uh, to give attention and reverence to God and His Word. Uh, I like what one, um, in one devotional book, they entitled this psalm, Good Thoughts in Bad Times. Good Thoughts in Bad Times. And I think that's appropriate, as we'll see in just a moment. And, And really, any good thought which we may receive to encourage us in bad times must come from words that have been tested and tried and purified. And the words of men, the words of men themselves, they cannot produce good thoughts in bad times. But the words of God can. So notice with me, Psalm 12, verse 1, Help, Lord, For the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail among the children of men. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. Who have said, with our tongue will we prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord, I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Notice the first two, ver- two, two words, help, Lord. I want to preach on that tonight. Help, Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are and we thank you for that which you desire and intend to do in our hearts. 
And so, Lord, as we come to this portion of Scripture, this text this evening, Lord, help us to be instructed. Help us to uh, understand the struggle of the psalmist and uh, his desperation, but also help us to understand what the answer is, uh, that we might find a remedy for our own souls when we are in such conditions. So, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would give us understanding, uh, that, uh, Lord, we would not just hear the Word, be doers of the Word, and that your Spirit would make a specific application to our lives where it is needed. Uh, we know that uh, your word does not return void. And we thank you for those words that we just read, that your words are pure words, that silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Uh, there is no blemish or error or anything that can be criticized of what you've said in your word. And so for that we rejoice. So we ask that you would bless this time, guide my words and my thoughts, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to ask a series of questions, and then I'm going to answer those questions as we consider this psalm. And the first question that we ask is, as we see the first two words of this psalm, help, Lord, is what is the, uh, what is the psalmist admitting? What is he admitting? And really, when you look at those two words, help, Lord, as I was uh, beginning to study through this uh, psalm, I really saw help, Lord, and I went on to study the remainder of uh, the psalm. And uh, for the first part of my study, I, I really missed and didn't really pay attention to those first two words. But really, those first two words speak volumes. And what is the psalmist here by those two words? What is he admitting when he says, Help, Lord. Now, this is, uh, we would find here, this is a cry, and much of the Psalms are this. The psalmist is crying out. He, he is praying to God. He is seeking for God's intervention. And if we haven't discovered so far that many of the Psalms, when the psalmist is dealing with difficult circumstances, and this is very important in all the Psalms, that the goal that the psalmist is entering into the Psalm is often trying to find an answer to the circumstances for either the circumstances to be taken away or for uh, the opposition or the enemy uh, to be stamped out. But ultimately what the psalmist discovered is that God does not uh, smooth the road or take away the enemy. God provides comfort and strength and peace in the midst of that. Now this is very important for us because if our trust in God and our faith in God lies only in God smoothing out our path, then we are looking for the wrong thing. We're looking for the wrong thing. We are interested in God that helps us make our lives easy. And the truth is life is not easy and so what is God wanting to do? Here, notice what is the psalmist admitting by those words? Well, first, notice, those words indicate desperation. Do they not? It's the opening words. Help, Lord. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where uh, you were desperate, where uh, you needed help. I remember just a few years back, I was uh, working on 
uh, changing uh, the, the brake pads and the rotors on our Honda Pilot. And uh, so I, I, um, I proceeded to um, uh, try to follow instructions and I went online to find out how to do this and, and so forth. And so um, I put the car on a lift and uh, there was a little piece of information that they put in there. And that was, now when you put the car on a lift, make sure you slide the tire underneath the car. In case the car falls off of the lift and crush you. And so I did that. I put uh, the tire underneath the car and so forth. And I went to work and I was underneath the car and it was pretty windy that day. And um, at, at that moment... Uh, I could see the car start rocking, and I looked at the, what is that called? The, it's not a lift. Uh, jack, stand. jack stand, that's it. And so I saw it, really a slow motion, it started to go like this, tilting. And I was like, <gasps> and so I proceeded to get out from underneath that, and the car fell on the tire. Now, the tire was there, so I don't think I would have been entirely crushed. But I would imagine that if I was under the car at that moment, I think there would have been one word coming out of my mouth. Help! Somebody help! I'm stuck. I'm getting... I don't know if I would have had the breath to say that. But that would have been the first words. Why? Because I would have been in a desperate situation. And so when we think about those words here, often there's maybe a few words as the psalmist begins, but here it's evident from those words that those are words that indicate desperation. He is desperate he is distressed. And so this is what automatically comes out of desperation, those words. We also see here that secondly, those words indicate helplessness in this sense. You see, as long as a man feels that he can save himself, he typically does not ask for help. Uh, this is true, by the way, when we think about salvation. Uh, men do not cry out to be saved unless they have first become aware of their distress that they are in. Uh, one does not cry out for help until he first realizes that he is lost. Uh, I read this illustration sometime where uh, somebody was uh, stuck in the sea and they were praying, God, to send, uh, deliver me, God, deliver me, God. Help, God, help me. And then there's a helicopter that came by and they threw a, a buoy out there. And they said, hey, grab onto the buoy. And he says, no, I'm asking God for help. You, you go away, you go away. And then the man died, he goes to heaven. And then, and, and then he says, well, God, why didn't you intervene? He says, well, I send the helicopter with a buoy. Why didn't you grab on? You see, help indicates that the person recognizes that they are helpless in that, in that, in that point. You see, if someone doesn't recognize they are helpless, they're not going to ask for help. So those words indicate not only desperation, but helplessness. But also third, those words indicate confidence. You say, well, wait a minute. How can you be helpless and be despair, but then uh, be confident? Well, notice the words. Help. What's the second word? Lord. So there is both helplessness and despair. And then immediately after that, there's confidence. You see, if I would have been stuck under that car, I would have said, help, anybody help. I don't care who it is. Anybody help. But here he's not asking help of anybody. He's asking help of the Lord. 
And so there is both helplessness, despair, but at the same time there is confidence. Where is deliverance going to come from? Uh, Where is the answer to his helplessness going to come from? And here the answer is clear. His confidence in the moment of despair is in the Lord. Now this is fundamental here to Christian living. Why? Because we have to recognize and when we are in those moments of helplessness and despair that we not try to run around everywhere and try to find the answers and everything else except God. But often that's what we do in the energy of the flesh. We want somebody to do something, something to change, but let's not ask help of the Lord. So the first question is, what is the psalmist admitting? Well, he is admitting both his despair and helplessness as well as his confidence. But the second question I have is, what is the psalmist troubled by? Okay, so we know he is in despair, we know that he is helpless, and we know that his confidence is in God, but what is he so uh, uh, disparaged about? What is the trouble with the psalmist? Well, there's a series of things that we find in the psalm. And notice here, verse 1, he says this. Immediately he says, for, here's the reason why he says, help, Lord, for... The godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They, notice, they speak vanity, every one with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. Who have said, with our tongue we uh, will we prevail. Our lips are our own Who is Lord over us? Skip down to verse 8. Here's how he ends this, this cry for help. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest of men, vilest men are exalted. So here I bullet down to three areas that he is distressed about. The first one uh, that the first area that affects the psalmist here, what is he troubled by? First of all, is Because of the scarcity of godly men. By the scarcity of godly men. Isn't that what he says? Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth. For the faithful fail from among the children of men. Now, notice those expressions here when he says, uh, for the godly man ceaseth. The, The word ceaseth means basically to end. Uh, There is no longer godly men. Uh, The generation of godly men has ceased. They're gone. Where are the godly men? He's not finding any. They they seem to have ceased all around. He's looking around. And so he becomes helpless and distressed. Why? Because there is no godly men. He says, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. The word fail here really means to, to disappear. So to cease, to disappear, to be gone. So the godly men... Uh, when we think about, all right, what are the godly men? Well, I think the easiest way to identify a godly man, we would say that a godly man is a man who fears the Lord. That's a godly man. The psalmist here is no longer able to find men around him who fear God. When we think about the faithful men, he says the faithful uh, fail among the children of men. Uh, Faithful men are men who continue in adversity. That's a faithful man. The psalmist is no longer uh, about, uh, he, he can no longer find men that are steadfast, unmovable. 
always abounding in the work of the Lord. Uh, they're not there. So the godly man ceaseth, uh, the faithful fail among the children of men. And so here, notice here, what, why, why is he so troubled? He is so troubled because there is a scarcity of godly men. There's a second reason why he is troubled, and that is because of the vanity of every man. Notice verse 2. He says, they, now obviously he's talking about there is no more godly, there is no more faithful men. That means there is ungodly and unfaithful men. Those, they speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. Notice what they say specifically in verse 4. Who have said, with our tongue will we prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? So the Bible says here they speak vanity. Uh, vanity means to be, to be useless, to be without true purpose. And so those are the men who speak vanity. Notice the language as they speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor. And so there is kind of this, this spirit of um, uh, idolatry and carelessness. He says every man. Now, in other words, he is looking around verse 1. For godly men, and he can't find any. He's looking around for faithful men, and he can't find any. And then he recognizes as he's looking around that every man kind of is, is vain. Every man around, all, all them and their neighbor, they're, they're engaged in all kind of conversation and, and things that are vain and idolatrous and, and useless. And he looks around and he, he seems to see a complacency to spiritual things. Notice what they say. He, he mentions in verse 2, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. And so the focus here is on what they say. So there is a, a carelessness, a vanity in their speech, but they use flattering words. Uh, the idea here, he says that both in verse 2 and verse 3, uses the word flattering. Uh, the idea of deceptive, the word means smooth. They're smooth. They, they, they draw people after their own counsels. He mentions also with a double heart do they speak. And you know what that means is a Christian comes to a man and says, Hey, are you a Christian? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And then another man who is a heathen walks up to the same man and says, Are you a Christian? He says, Oh no, I'm not a Christian. That's a double heart. Uh, someone who is one thing to a man and he is another thing to another man. Uh, that's a double heart. And so he says, where's the godly men who are not vain? Where's the faithful man who is steadfast, who is consistent, who is not double hearted? I can't find any. So he is troubled by the scarcity of godly men. He is troubled by the vanity of every man. Notice what he says in verse 4. This is what they say with our tongue. Will we prevail? He, they say our lips are our own. Well, we know that's not true. It's the Lord's. He is creator. And then he said, who is Lord over us? So they are idolaters. They've made themselves their own God. They think that they don't answer to God, uh, that uh, they, uh, nobody is judge or nobody has authority over man. So that is vain men. So there's a scarcity of godly men. 
there's the vanity of every man. But there's a third thing that troubles him, and that's found in the last verse, verse 8, and that is the ascendancy of wicked men. The ascendancy of wicked men. Notice what he says in verse 8. The wicked walk on every side. Notice, when the vilest men are exalted. So here he basically describes by the words, the wicked walk on every side. He's describing here the prevalence of wickedness. Right? Notice, the wicked walk on every side. They're everywhere. That's the prevalence of the wicked. And the wicked walk on every side. They are everywhere and they are abounding. And he says here, how does that happen? Notice the word, when. He says, the wicked walk on every side. When the vilest men are exalted. And so, how do we get to the point when the psalmist says, I look on every side and there's wicked men all around me. How does that happen? That happens when the vilest of men are exalted. The vilest of men are exalted. You see, the exaltation of the vilest of men brings and promotes the wicked walking on every side. When you look at the top of any society and you see the vilest of men, expect to find the wicked on every side. That's what the psalmist is troubled about. The scarcity of godly men, the vanity of every man that he seems to come in contact with, nobody's concerned about the things of God, and the ascendancy of wicked men. Hey, things haven't changed. Let me ask you this. Are you troubled by the scarcity of godly men? By the vanity of every most people that you come in contact with? Are you troubled by the ascendancy of wicked men? And you look all around and it seems to that wickedness is on every side? All right. The emphasis in verse 2 has been on the words they speak vanity. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. Notice verse 4. Who have said, this is what they say, these are their very words, with our tongue will we prevail. Our lips are our own who is Lord over us? So this has been, notice the emphasis has been on all the things that they're saying. They're speaking and they're going on and on. And everywhere I turn, I hear the words of the wicked. I hear the, the words of vain people. And I, I can't find in the midst of all of those words, I can't find some godly men. I can't find some faithful men. I just find some vain and, and, and flattering and, and self-conceited and idolatrous and wicked people all around. So what does he do? Verse five, 5, he says, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. So God speaks. Now this is important here. Because all the psalmist has talked about right now is everything that the wicked have said and the vain people and what they say and their flattering words and their double heart and here's the things that they say, but then God speaks. 
And God says, I will set him, the poor, the sighing, in safety from him that puffeth at him. Now, I want you to notice here's the words, because who is he talking about? The oppressed, uh, the oppression of the poor, the sighing of the needy. Now, as I mentioned in the Psalms before, there's a pattern in the book of Psalms that those who are poor, who are oppressed, are uh, likened to believers. Jesus Christ taught this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's not talking about those who are monetarily poor. He's talking about those who are poor in spirit. Those who are the people who are dependent on God. Those who are oppressed because they are dependent on God. And they look to God. And so notice here what God does with the poor. What God does with the needy. He, notice, I will, God says, I will set him. Now, the word set means to place, to bring, to be stayed. I will set him. In safety. Now, I want you to notice here the word really safety means to be at liberty to be delivered. But notice what he says I will set him in safety, notice, from him that puffeth at him. So here's what I'm trying to tell you with those words God does not say, that I'm going to bring you to safety, I'm going to bring the poor and the needy to safety, when I wipe out the person that puffs at them. That's not what he says. He's still puffing, isn't he? He's still puffing, isn't he? I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. He's still puffing. He's still uttering words. So being set in safety does not mean that the words of the wicked have stopped. To be set at safety does not mean that the words of the wicked have stopped. What has happened then? How will the Lord... Here is, this is what God says. Notice He's focused in the first part. Help, Lord, why? Because this is what I'm hearing. I'm hearing all this, and it's crowding my mind. It's crowding my heart. I hear all those things, and I'm just in desperation. But then God says that He's going to set me in safety from Him that puffs at me. From all the words that I hear. And how is the Lord going to set the poor and the sighing in safety? Here it is, verse 6. The words of the Lord. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So here is what he does here. He's heard what the wicked have said. He's heard what God has said. And so here's the question again I have for us tonight. What words do we put more weight on? What words do we deem to be more important in our lives? What words are affecting us more? The words of men or the words of God? Which ones? Which ones? Is it true that we listen to the words of men more than the words of God? 
Have we allowed our, uh, the words of men to have more weight in our hearts and our minds than the words of the Almighty God? Is our distress caused by the ungodly greater than the peace that God wants to give us? Have we been buried under the weight of those who speak vanity without having the words of the Lord bring us out? You see, when God says, I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him, it is only then that the psalmist realizes and he says, the words of the Lord. Now see, this is what God said in verse 5. But this is what the psalmist says in verse 6. The words of the Lord are indeed pure words. What are they like? They're like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation. I, I've preached on this verse before about Bible preservation, and we're grateful for Bible preservation. But here we're trying to make a specific application here to the psalmist who says, Help, Lord. And notice what he finds help with. He finds help, here it is, in the words of the Lord. You know what brings trouble in our lives today? The words of men. The words that we ruminate in our own minds and in our own hearts and we somehow become disconnected to the words of God. Where the words of men in our own words have a greater weight than the words of God. You see... We may know the words of God, but do we hold on to the words of men with greater tenacity than we have ever held to any words of God? Anytime that there is somebody that goes through struggle, you'll hear them something like this, well, I've seen and I've heard and this has happened to me. And often they you may quote a verse and they may say, oh yeah, I know what the Bible says. And so ultimately it's not about whether they're knowledgeable about the Word of God. It's about what they place greater importance on. The words of men, their own words, or the words of God. Now, this is a curious verse in the sense that when you read it, verse 6 says, the words of the Lord are, are pure words and he gives us a, um, an illustration on how pure the words of God are. Notice what he says. He says, as this is how pure the words of God are. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Okay, now, uh, when I look at this here for just a moment, I do want to point out here that our faith today is subject to trials. Right? Our lives are subject to testing and trying. The Bible talks about the trying of our faith. We even know one day that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our works will be tried by fire. Now, we will, ourselves, we will be saved, but our works will be tried by fire, and uh, the wood, the hay, and the stubble, that will be burned up. But the gold and the silver, that, that's going to be preserved. And, and so we, we get the idea here of trying, and, and when we think about that, we think, okay, well, it's about... Right? The trying of our faith is really to purify us and to cleanse us and to, to remove any impurity that is in our lives. 
Okay, I, I agree with that. Now, when we think about this illustration, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. So let's talk about a silversmith. I don't know if that's the title, but silversmith exists. I know they work with silver, but if you mine the precious metal, such as silver, when you originally find that the silver... Uh, the process would be uh, to bring the silver to a silversmith who then would, would take that metal and typically if it was found in any part of the earth there would be a lot of impurities uh, included in the silver. And, and so what the silversmith would do is he would grab a, basically a vessel and he would put the vessel on, on a furnace, in a really hot furnace, and then he would put that amount of silver in that vessel and the vessel would get so warm that uh, then the silver would begin to melt. And so the silversmith makes the, the fire as hot as possible, the furnace as hot as possible, and then the silver melts there in that furnace, and the idea there is to refine the silver, to make it more dense in the silver, to make it more valuable by density. And so uh, you would weigh, but if there's a lot of dirt and impurities in there, then the weight would not be as precious or as expensive as if you removed all the impurities. Uh, then the weight with more silver, less impurities, would be more valuable. And so the idea is the silversmith would put the silver, it would melt, and then the process of melting, then all the impurities, it's called the dross, the dross would rise up to the top, and then the, the silversmith then would take a, a metal object, and then he would take all the impurities, all the dirt that would rise to the top, and then he would gently skim it off the top. And he would do that process over and over and over again. And so here he says, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And so the silver is tried over and over and over again until it reaches the point when it's pure silver, without any impurities. And some, the, the silversmith might say, all right, here is a pound of silver, and it's pure. All the impurities have been removed. Okay, well, notice the verse. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Purified seven times. Are the words of the Lord pure words? Okay, then let me ask you this. Why is he talking then here about them being purified? If the words of God are pure in the first place, why do they need to be refined? Why do they need to be purified? Well, he's not saying here that the word of God needs to be purified. He is saying, here it is, the Word of God is pure. It has no impurities. It has no corruption. It has no mistake. And how do we know that? Because the Word of God has been tried seven times. And every single time when you've tried the Word of God, you try to see if there's any uncleanness, any impurity in the Word of God, and you can find none every time it's tried. Because God's Word is perfect. It's pure already. You see, the idea here is that as we try the Word of God, as we uh, uh, hear what God says, we hear the words of men, and we hear the words of God, when we place a greater weight to the Word of God, we're going to find the words of God pure every single time. 
So what is the trouble? Here's the trouble. The words of God don't have as great weight as the words of men. They're not as impactful in our lives. The words of God are not as impactful in our lives as the words of men or the words in our, in our own minds and in our own hearts. And we know the Word of God, but somehow we don't try it to see if it is indeed pure. And I can tell you, it is every single time. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. You see, the word of God is never tested in heaven. For they know that it is already settled there. It is only men who have the desire to engage in trying by fire the Word of God. And when the Word of God is truly tried, truly tested, when it goes through testing, when the Word of God goes through the testing, you will find, if you truly trust it, that on the other side of having tried the Word of God, tested the Word of God, you will find no impurities in it. No impurities in it. I was reading an account that was recounted by Oliver Cromwell's secretary. Oliver Cromwell's secretary was dispatched to a continent on some important business, and he stayed one night in a seaport town, and he tossed on his bed, unable to sleep. According to an old custom, a servant slept in his room, and on this occasion slept soundly enough. The secretary at length awakened the man who had asked how it was that his master could not rest. He says, I am so afraid something will go wrong with my embassage, was the reply. Master, said the valet, may I ask a question or two, to be sure? Did God rule the world before you were born? Well, most assuredly he did, replied the secretary. And will he rule it after you're dead? Well, he said, well, certainly he will. To which the valet replied, then master... Why not let him rule the present too? Why not let him rule the present too? And the master and the valet, his faith was stirred. Peace was the result, and in a few minutes, both he and his servant were sound asleep. You see, the trouble that we have is not that we don't know the Word of God. The trouble is not that we don't know the Word of God. When we are troubled is because we've allowed something in the present to affect us in a greater way than we've allowed the Word of God to affect us. And so the agitation that comes about in our lives is not because we don't know the Word of God because in that moment we're not trying the Word of God and proving the Word of God, and finding that God is faithful. We'll be done here. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, <clears throat> and we'll end here with this chapter. Not the whole chapter, but the end of the chapter. Notice Isaiah chapter 40, and verse 28. Isaiah 40, verse 28.
Isaiah 40, verse 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? Hast thou not known that? Do you, now, the idea here is, evidently you know it, but why aren't you living by it? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint. That's what God does. And to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Here is the truth. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. If you are weary and you are fainting, it is because you're not waiting on the Lord. What's the word? Wait. But ultimately, that's what often we're not willing to do. You see, we want God to intervene now. We don't want to wait. We don't want to prove the Word of God. We, want to, we don't want to see whether God has been faithful or not. We just want a God to erase our trouble. And that's not the way it works. The only strength we get is we get strength by waiting on the Lord after the question. Don't you know, haven't you heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. So notice, see the, what he says? God is not weary and he doesn't faint. But here's the trouble. Young men, they become weary and they faint. But those that wait on the Lord, who does not weary or faint? Those that wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They will not be weary, and they will not faint. Why? Because their strength is in the Lord. It's in the Lord. You see, ultimately, the Word of God is not the issue. It's not the issue. The issue is, in our lives, what do we place greater importance on? What do we place greater importance on? Do we believe that God, with whatever measure of distress we experience, that the psalmist experience, do we not believe that God can provide the exact strength and comfort and peace and strength we need to match the distress we experience in the world? Of course He is. So it's about who we place more weight on. So, let me encourage you. I don't think that anybody is um, will ever be free of distress or discouragement or difficulties. We will never be free of that. But in those moments when we go through those things, what are we listening to? Where are we trying to find hope in? 
Let me, let me just say this. If you're looking for your confidence to be in the words of men changing, then you have your hope in the wrong thing. But if you're looking for the words of God to comfort you while the enemy puffs, then that's where the answer is. You see, God is God and we are men. We need to stop trying to get God to conform to our will. And we need to find strength from Him while we're here. And by the way, He will give it every time.